You're listening to the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Acting Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has been working to make cars safer. Find out more at autosafety.org. All right, let's start off with the, the very light, uh, nice topic, which is one that uh, has gone around the news this past week with BMW is having you subscribe to get your car's seats heated. Right. What world do we live in? I, You know, there was a similar, Toyota came out a few months back saying they were going to have um, folks have to subscribe going forward to the remote ignition as well, um, and so other features. So I'm interest, interested to see how far manufacturers go here, because if they start subs- offering subscriptions to safety features, we're going to be very vocal about it. Right, because like I have mentioned before, I have a Toyota and the first year you could use the app on your phone for free, like with right. remote ignition and all this stuff. And I mean, I never used it, but then after the year was up, they're like, you want to keep using this, give us some money and all like. That sounds insane. They took it away, and that's what they were. That's what part of the article I was reading about was on these folks who have relied on remote ignition, and now it's gone unless you pay twenty bucks a month or whatever. Um, and to me, just you know, from the standpoint of having looked at cars and parts for a long time, it just seems really wasteful mm. to be in pre-installing a lot of equipment that's going to go unused by the majority of owners um it seems like it's going to add weight to vehicles which we already know is bad in crashes plus it's it's just a waste of materials if you're producing vehicles that are capable of things that the end consumer isn't even going to use because they refuse to subscribe to your absurd 20 dollars a month scheme so that's my take on on those um, for now. I, I don't plan to subscribe to anything in the future. I'm going to buy cars that don't require subscription. <laughs> Good luck. Okay. <laughs> Has anyone, I mean, because I know both Ford and GM, they, they've talked about having, basically they just want to have driverless remote Uber style cars. And so it becomes a subscription. Is that what? Yeah, I think if that ever happens, you know, that would certainly, you know, you'd have the option of stepping into, you know, a, vehicle that's cooled off and etc or maybe you could pay for a ride without ac who knows maybe you could get a cheap ride that's the uh the uber the uber what's before the uber u or the uber v whatever comes before the x so maybe maybe that's uh you know who knows i really when you it's so far away that being something that's on all of our roads that it's, it's really impossible to predict what it's going to look like and um the subscription model for a vehicle that you know it's a it's a real change because in the past you buy a vehicle and everything that's in the vehicle essentially comes with it and it works now we're seeing you know it's starting with tesla and moving through some other manufacturers this idea that they can monetize things after the sale uh, beyond maintenance and that sort of thing to get customers into their um, dealerships they can do it online they can offer infotainment options they can offer all sorts of um, creature comforts inside the vehicle, like heated seats and that sort of thing. So it's a, it's probably a huge market. I think the real question is whether consumers are you know more like me and say, what is all this mess and why would I ever pay for it? And 
how that drives how they produce vehicles because you know if every vehicle is coming off the lot ready for a subscription to these features that are never going to be used again I, I just think that's incredibly wasteful my Subaru came with three subscription options <clears throat> excuse me I'm going to mute for a second yeah, I think, Michael, they, the way they'd get you is, uh, you know, it's cold outside and, you know, a little thing pops up on your screen and says, hey, for five bucks, we can warm your butt. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. You know, it's kind of infuriating to, to see how they've stalled on doing things like installing really cheap fixes like rear seatbelt reminders and other things, fixing the strength of seats at, you know, four, two, two to five dollars a pop. And they're offering junk like this at a premium when, when we know they could be installing these other systems cheaper that would save lives and, and prevent a lot of injuries. Well, my Subaru came with three options, uh, subscription options. One was for the pre-installed Sirius XM radio. One was for um, updates on the maps that are built into the control system. Um, and the third was for their safety button. I can't remember exactly what it's called, but there's a Subaru safety button, kind of like the on-call uh, option. And uh, I, I declined all three of those, but I did see on the Subaru one of the, the safety features that was optional and is now disabled because I did not subscribe to the, uh, that particular service. Since I have an iPhone, and the subscription service was running through the iPhone anyway, it seemed to make no sense to me at all to pay for a subscription service that was kind of junior to what I already had in my iPhone. But that was in uh, my 2020 vehicle. So maybe they're just test marketing. I don't know what's going on with that, but you know, th it's current. Yeah, you know, it's one of those areas where we think NHTSA needs to really, you know, if, if NHTSA was making technology, safety technology mandatory, rather than allowing manufacturers to choose to voluntarily install it and sell it at a premium over a few years, then we can ensure that safety, safety equipment isn't subject to subscription. Um, right now, in a lot of areas, automatic emergency braking is one. Hopefully that will be wrapped up and mandated um, this year or next year at the latest. We're seeing, you know, the ability, like Fred says, for, you know, you buy a car and you can choose to subscribe to X service, or you can buy a car and you can choose, you, you can choose to pay extra to have automatic emergency brake or lane keeping assistance. And, you know, we think those things should be included in every vehicle and not, you know, safety shouldn't be an option. Um, when you have systems like that, that are able to be mass produced and, and rolled out to, to everyone. The only reason for delay is to make a profit. Um, and we've seen that again and again, and we're hoping that NHTSA can get these features mandated when, when, when they're um, ready, ready for prime time. Yeah, I think having all of the features except for, I mean, uh, like satellite radio, go ahead, charge people for that, because who cares? But yeah, all the safety features, 100%. Like I said, my Toyota had the, um, it also had some sort of uh, safety sense thing or something like that. If you yeah. crash, it would call the police for you. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, again, I have a phone and my phone will notice if I'm in a car crash and, uh, you know, automatically go ahead and dial services. Um, so, I, yeah, I don't understand what the manufacturers are trying to do there. It's strange. Um, 
All right, so let's uh, move on. So, uh, Michael, you sent me this interesting thing about the uh, software recalls in, in cars um, because cars are essentially computers for the last 20-plus years. Um, and I was thinking about this when you're talking about, you know, uh, with the, you know, Tesla does this all the time. They put things out over the air updates um, and to update their software. So they're, they're really doing that old Facebook thing of like, you know, move fast and break things, including, right. you know, our cars and people's safety. Uh, and I thought about, well, the airline industry, I had a friend who worked for Airbus and like they did extensive, extensive software testing, like because they don't want plane crashes. Boeing recently with the 737 Max, they're just like, hey, let's outsource this software development to people for nine bucks an hour in a country that doesn't have any aerospace industry. And we all saw how that went. Like, is what is the the auto manufacturers doing with software development? Well, they're doing pretty much whatever they want. Uh, you know, you said you have a phone, right? <clears throat> and and I'm sure your phone is ten years old, and you've never had any software upgrades to it uh, over the ten years, right? Because there's, there's no reason to, and it still works perfectly well because it's compatible with all the features that have evolved in the last 10 years, right? Well, well, well phone's newer, but yeah, I get, I get your point. <clears throat> but that's what you're really asking for with automobiles, right? If you have an automobile, is it going to be stable over the course of its life, 10 years, 15 years, um, without any software upgrades? Or how do those upgrades occur? And how do you make sure that they're compatible with both the hardware and the software? There's no regulation for that basically been left up to the manufacturers to do whatever they want in that arena. Has there been any sort of industry standards of, Hey, we're all going to kind of meet the basic structures. Cause you're right. You're talking, okay. So maybe Ford's writing one piece of software, but that's integrating with, you know, Google CarPlay or whatever. And that's integrating with, you know, some, you know, Johnson control thing on something else. And, and is there any standards? Well, there are standards, there are industry standards for how stuff works together, but they're all optional. None of them are compulsory. <clears throat> Excuse me. And there's no, is there any, and there's no regular, why do I even ask these questions? I already know the answer. And there's no yeah. regulations around this. No, there's nothing there. So everyone's just doing whatever they want and there's no oversight. Well, wait, it gets worse. Because there's, uh, there's no requirement that even the hardware uh, is still operable after any period of time. So the, uh, the computers that they put in the cars have a lifetime that's limited by the manufacturers to whatever they think is a good idea. There's no standard that says it's got to last for five years, 10 years, or a reasonable car lifetime. So you've got two competing problems. One is that the hardware can fail. And the second is that the uh, software is of course dependent upon the hardware, right? You can't run software, you can't run 64-bit software like you've got in all of your apps on your computer now on a 16-bit 8016 computer or 8086-based computer that you had 20 years ago. So you run into compatibility problems when you try to install new software on an old platform. So there's a, a couple of problems. One is that the hardware itself 
may not survive. The other is that even if the hardware survives for a long period of time, updates and software by third parties that you could have on your on your uh, installed on your car could be incompatible with the software that's originally on the car. And um, that software itself may become obsolete. You know, there's a, there's a principle called the orphan software or thought called the orphan software, which is software that's been abandoned by the company that originally produced it, or the company has simply gone out of business. So whenever you have the software produced by anybody who doesn't have long-term stability in the market, you run the risk that that company will go out of business or the software will be unsupported along with the periodic updates that you know, you're used to with all of your commercial software, including security updates. <clears throat> and it's different when your software is running a phone because if your phone doesn't work, you get angry and you, you know, swear and you move on. But if the software that's running your platform on which your life depends doesn't work, it's an entirely different issue. So the attempt of companies to treat the software in a car the same way they would treat the software on an app or on your phone is really, is really a bad idea to say the, to say the least. Do manufacturers take the approach, like, um, probably not exactly like NASA does, but you know, when NASA puts out any stuff, their, their computer systems on all these things, they're, they're five generations back. They're really old because they're using chips that have been hardened and tested and they know all of the flaws in them. They have to shield them heavily for radiation, everything like that. Are auto manufacturers looking at saying, okay, here's the latest and greatest stuff. We don't want that. Let's go back a few generations because we already know everything that's in there. It's been tested and build off of that. Or again, they're just doing whatever they want. Well, both actually. They're, they're doing whatever they want. But for the uh, purposes of developing the software, they have to make a choice of whether they want to put in the latest and greatest uh, hardware and operating system, or if they want to revert to something older. <clears throat> so it's their choice. They can, they can do whatever they want. And most of the companies or all the companies have their own internal standards for what they need for reliability and operability in the software. But again, there's no national standards. There's no enforceable standards. It is up to the individual company what they do and how they approach that problem. Okay. So is again, relating to the airline industry, is there any... Um you know, redundancy in these systems, you know, like every system on an airplane is, you know, triple redundancy in case something fails. I don't imagine my car has that, but I, does, is there anything around, uh, you know, what kind of redundancy is in place because chips and software will fail and we all have phones. We've all witnessed that. There probably is some redundancy for certain critical components, but the amount of redundancy they have is up to the company. So uh, there is no requirement that says, that a single string design, which is really the minimum that you have to do, is uh, is even the standard that you need to have, or there's no requirement that says a certain amount of redundancy is required, even for safety critical systems. So most of the safety critical systems are run by distributed electronic control units that are built into the components, like the brakes have an ECU, 
that regulates the brake pressure. There's no requirement anywhere that says an ECU has to have built-in internal redundancy. There's no requirement that says the control commands that are sent to it need to be uh, even checked or need to be redundant. And there's no redundancy at all in the communication system that's built into the car. It's a single string design that uses uh, a very old insecure standard to communicate among all these electronic control units. So redundancy can be built in at a lot of different levels in the system, particularly in aircraft and spacecraft, as you've described it. Um, there is no standard for the cars. And basically these are all economic decisions that are made by the company as to how much redundancy they want to build into the car at the level of the central processing unit, at the level of the network distributing the information and at the level of the electronic control units that are associated with each individual safety critical device within the car. Every time I talk to you guys, I want to drive less and less. It, it really just sounds <laughs> like you guys are describing the wild west. Um, is, is that just because you guys are real positive and not? You know, I, I think in, when you talk about redundancy, when you think about cars, in general, cars don't have a lot of redundancy. I mean, if your brakes failed, you're screwed, right? I mean, there's, you know, if you, if you get a flat on at going high speeds, you're in trouble. You know, if you make one little mistake, I mean, there's, there's not a lot of room for error. And so that applies to the components as well. So it, it's, it's, um, as, as these components age, I think it's, it's really, that's one reason why it's really important for folks to stay on top of their maintenance and that kind of thing, because some of these things can be prevented by staying on top of maintenance, by taking a look at your car. Whereas with the software parts, it's a lot scarier for folks because there's no visual aids. There's no, sometimes there's no signs or signals. There's just an imminent problem as we've seen kind of with, um, Tesla and Honda and some of these phantom braking incidents where the vehicle thinks there's an emergency taking place, slams on the brake, and then endangers that vehicle from following vehicles. So um, redundancy is important in, in the software and sensing systems um, to prevent things like that. Whereas on other parts of the car, you know, it, it, redundancy probably would increase the cost of vehicles significantly. But in software, it, you know, it's something that, that is not something that you have to pay for for every vehicle coming off the line. It's something you basically code once and then you've got it. So um, it's easy. I think it's a lot cheaper to put redundancy into software than it, on the vehicles than it is to actually make vehicles redundant you know, completely in all their systems. One more thought on redundancy, on redundancy though. <clears throat> in the old days, you used to have an emergency brake on the car that you would have available to you in case your brakes failed. You don't have that anymore because all the systems in all the brakes in cars now use a dual redundant, um, dual diagonal braking system. So if one of the hydraulic systems operating your brakes fails, the other one takes over completely. So that's a case of redundancy built in at the hardware level. So the industry has accepted due to regulation the idea that you need redundancy for certain critical systems. And there is a federal motor vehicle safety standard for dual redundant braking systems. That's why you no longer have the emergency brake in a car now, because these, these systems have been shown to be very reliable and they do have the redundant backup. Uh, we 
think that you should probably have an equivalent safe system for safety critical hardware and logical components. And there's no reason not to from a design perspective, except for the cost of installing them. Now, car companies will say, well, it's expensive, we can't do it. But the fact is that if all car companies are required to do it, there's no cost differential among the car companies because they all have to do it. Just like with the dual diagonal braking system, there's no reason not to do it except for lack of will. So, okay, that makes me feel better because that's always scared me with the, you know, it's a 2020 car we have and, and there's no emergency brake I can yank up on. And so, especially with teaching a 17-year-old to drive, I'm like, oh, I want that. Instead, there's a little switch that says park. And I'm like, ah, that's not going to, I don't, I don't think that's going to do anything if he drives like a 17 year old. So how did, how did that get in place where all the manufacturers said, Hey, this is, how do we do this? Was it, was it NHTSA that forced them or? You know, I, I, I think the jury's still way out on NHTSA getting the manufacturers to get vehicles parked correctly. We're, you know, we're having a lot of problems seeing rollaways continue to occur and some of, you know, some of the push button vehicles folks pull into their driveway hit the button get out and their car rolls off because they never took it out, put it back into park um and you know rollaway features are incredibly cheap to get get into cars and to get working it's just that manufacturers aren't committed to them because they're not required across the industry so we continue to see you know dozens maybe hundreds of injuries and, and dozens or more fatalities every year from folks in situations like that where you have a piece of technology that could easily easily prevent cars from rolling um and they're not installing it because of minuscule cost concerns and that could be applied across the industry so that's that's uh, uh, that's that's a good point okay so um moving on from that little slight nightmare, maybe improvement. I don't know. Uh, you mentioned the, uh, in an email to me, the recent phase out of 3G saw a bunch of owners. I imagine all the GM OnStar people um, losing access to emergency crash notification. And for that, I, I, I knew someone who had an OnStar system. You could press it and be like, hey, my tire is flat and they'll come out and fix it. So, I mean, this is obviously the FCC closing down this spectrum or or what what's the well this was the this was essentially there were two things there that have happened in the world of wireless communications in the last couple of years um the first really that we should probably discuss first is the vehicle vehicle communication since you mentioned the ftc um effectively the fcc sorry the fcc the fcc said Yes, Verizon and all the big telecom companies, we're going to let you take over this band that we had reserved previously for the vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle network spectrum to operate. operate. Um, and so what ended up happening is that all the manufacturers who were being dragged into the vehicle-vehicle vehicle -vehicle conversation kind of said, well, that's gone. We're, we're, gonna, we're not going to do that now. Um, so it's been pushed back for pro I mean, who knows how many years we were hoping that if all cars were able to talk to each other and thereby not hit each other, um, it could prevent a lot of uh, crashes. But the timeline for getting that into vehicles seems to have been pushed back at, at least a decade, maybe more by um, Big Phone and the FCC. So uh, let me just add something to that, okay? The rationale basically that the FCC used for giving up that spectrum was that it wasn't being used heavily enough. But the FCC had 
contacted companies that wanted to use it and said, don't do that because it's a bad idea. So they, the FCC created the environment that, that caused that spectrum to be underused. And then they used that rationale or they used that observation as a way of saying, we don't really need the spectrum because nobody's using it. So it was really a, an, an underhanded approach to that. And it was obviously long in the planning that they were going to find some way to give up that bandwidth for uh, other uses. Oh, that, that sounds crazy. But let's focus on the, uh, you're talking about this vehicle-to-vehicle communication. Because right. I have this theory doing these very long drives. There's two types of drivers, people with adaptive cruise control and people who are trying to kill me. Um, and so, you know, you drive around and you think, hey, if, if your car could talk to my car, you'd stop trying to drive into my trunk. Um, right. Because there's no room in there. So explain, what is, what is the, the, the idea behind vehicle-to-vehicle communication? I mean, put in, put in a simple form, if two vehicles can talk to each other, you can ensure that they never meet at an intersection without, you know, or there, there's, that's a very simple way, but in other ways that would enable vehicles to follow each other. It enables a lot of vehicle behaviors where that eliminate human error and that in many ways could make our, our drives easier and it could fit into the, you know, the crash avoidance components that are out there now and even you know be part of what's going to be maybe the autonomous future so there's the ability for vehicles to communicate where they are in space and time is critically important to preventing these crashes well they were also planning to share sensor data so for example if a car that is uh, three places ahead of you in traffic observes that there's a collision or there's a hazardous condition, uh, an obstacle in the road, for example, it could send out a signal that says, hey, at this position, there's a, you know, an obstacle in the road. And so you all ought to be aware of that and take appropriate action. So that was part of it too. And I think um, and, and beyond vehicles, there's infrastructure and, you know, you can, you can, this network extends to anything you want it to. And, you know, some of our ideas would be things like, you know, if a cell phone was a, you know, kind of a personal beacon along the spectrum, then cars know where there is a pedestrian um, and can't presumably can't hit that pedestrian. So there's a lot of really interesting safety features that 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 kind of technology allows for. And those seem to have been pushed back a bit. The inside baseball part of it, though, if, if I may, is that DSRC, which is the communication protocol that was planned for this uh, reserved spectrum was designed to be anonymous so that no vehicle could identify any other vehicle that was in the system. Everybody's personal information was protected. Now what the FCC wants to happen and what the industry wants to happen is that instead of the information being anonymous, it'll travel over cell phone networks, which are by definition not anonymous Everyone who's associated with an IP and all of the security problems associated with cell phones will now would now then be projected onto the cars that are using any kind of communication among the cars. So there's a real serious loss of privacy that's associated with the FCC's change in spectrum. Well, also, it sounds like you might not want to use cell phone connections because, you know, 
large parts of the country, especially, you know, Montana, you'll, you'll drive for hours and the, you'll have no cell service. Couldn't they do something similar to airplanes where they each, each vehicle's equipped with a transponder? It says, Hey, I'm here. I'm here. And that's just basically paying out. You can do some short radio wave thing. Yeah. That was the basic, in my head. So. I think that was the basic starting point for all of it is that even in, you know, a, a rural area where there is no communications infrastructure, at least the vehicles know they're there, right? And know where each, each other are. Um, but that, that, that's done now. They're gonna, they, the, apparently, and this is what Verizon and some of the bigger phone companies were pushing for overall here, is that they're all gonna be using 5G, which is not going to be deployed everywhere in rural areas immediately. We, we, that's pretty obvious. So um, once again, a lot of uh, rural folks are being left behind in our a race for advanced technology and, and our infrastructure is just not built to, to handle it at this point. And rural areas have a higher probability of fatal car crashes than urban areas. It's just, it's more dangerous to drive on, urban, on rural roads uh, for a lot of reasons, primarily because of the lack of infrastructure and lack of you know, highway uh, safety features that are built into a lot of the urban roadways. So uh, it might be a naive question, but why, I mean, why would they, vari- I understand why Verizon wants everyone to get on 5G, it's more money for them. But why would the auto manufacturers even deal with that? Why couldn't they just be, you know, use something else um, instead of relying on that? Does it just come down to cost or? I don't know what you mean by something else. Oh, well, like I said, like it's like some, you know, shortwave transponder that broadcasts. They don't have to use a cellular network. I mean, uh, well, technically they could do that, but bandwidth is uh, very closely regulated by the FCC. So the entire spectrum is allocated to certain uses and you can't just say, well, this is a good idea and let me just go ahead and broadcast. Uh, There's unregulated spectrum that is used for the Wi-Fi in your house, for example, and uh, certain uses like that, but it's very low power and you you have trouble using your neighbor's Wi-Fi because it doesn't broadcast very far. So the unregulated bandwidth or the unregulated spectrum is very low power and very short range. That's the problem that that keeps ideas like yours from proliferating. There's just very tight regulation of the available spectrum. Okay, so what happens with all these old kind of GM OnStar vehicles that have, you know, a, a 3G cell phone built into them with 3G rolling, you know, getting discontinued? Are those just that service is dead? You know, it, it, it depended on the manufacturer in that case. And I don't remember exactly what the details were on GM and OnStar, but some of the manufacturers provided an upgrade. Um, some manufacturers had actually planned for 3G obsolescence. So that was, that was the way to go, was to um, figure out a way that doesn't rely on, on 3G when you know it's, gonna, know it's gonna be going away soon. The weird thing is that some manufacturers were still building these vehicles and selling them with 3G capabilities almost up to the point where they shut the whole thing down. So um, it really raises some questions there about how much they care about their, their, you know, their customers' ability to access some of these emergency services and other things that the 3G network provided them. But um, there were, you know, 
it raises a question for me really though of how you know the epa for instance had we have an epa warranty on our um emissions components of the vehicle that goes for eight years after the date of purchase you know when there are you know safety critical components on a car even you know even something that you hope never gets used like auto automatic crash notification but something that relies on a communications network or relies on some other form of technology why don't we have you know an eight-year warranty for things like that just to ensure that manufacturers are building cars that are going to last you know safely for a lot eight years maybe maybe longer i mean i know a lot of folks tend to want to get a lot more than eight years out of their cars um with all of the software and all of the different things we're seeing these days it's it's going to be difficult i think to to carry that you know the long-term ownership out into the future um simply because of some of the things we're talking about here like electrical component failure you know airbags how long do those go there's a lot of issues that you know with almost forty thousand parts in a car that start failing from the day you drive it off the lot there's a lot of issues there um and the the time in which you can own a car safely i think is important and i think you know safety components should last longer than the three-year five-year warranty you might have on the car Anthony, I just want to uh, clarify that the 3G abandonment is not a spectrum problem. It's a decision by the cell phone companies to use that spectrum for other purposes. Right. So the 3G is just a way of coding the information. Um, it's, it's not spectrum specific. Okay. And just the cell phone companies want to do something else with that. That's correct. Okay. What are they going to do with it? Any ideas? More than more Netflix for Patty in Omaha. And 5G. At the expense of your auto notification or emergency system on your car. Well, 5G, 5G uses um, different slices of spectrum to communicate. That's why it can put so much information out. And the, uh, so they're reusing that 3G spectrum for the 5G applications that they want to use in the future. Got it. All right. I think... Um... So I think what I'd encourage everyone to do right now is to, uh, to donate to the Center for Auto Safety and help change these situations. All right. I think that's going to wrap us up for this week's episode. Stay tuned for next week. Where we can talk about rust, salt, and heat and uh, how um, there's no way to repair an electric vehicle battery. All right. So stay tuned. Bye. For more information, visit www.autosafety.org.